oftentimes transparency is just key to getting people on board and trust. Because once you lose that trust, you will most likely never get it back, especially from an external stakeholder who doesn't know you from, you know, a hole in the wall. You are listening to the Product Builders Podcast. Each week on the show, we bring you conversations with experts and innovators building digital products. Our conversations help you gain behind the scenes insights into building some of today's most innovative companies. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more at productbuilderspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you by Majestic Apps. We imagine, design, and build digital products. With clients like Chevrolet, AudioMac, IBM, Barefoot, and more, you can be sure you're in good hands. Reach out to us at MajesticApps.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Product Builders Podcast. This is your host, Mark Garcia, and joining me today, we have Caroline Albanese. Caroline is a director of data products and capabilities, and she leads a team that builds innovative data products for Dow Jones, a global leader in news and information services. Caroline, thanks so much for being here today. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. Before we dive into things, let's have you kick things off by introducing yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Great. Yeah. So like you said, I'm Caroline Albanese. I'm a product director at Dow Jones, and I oversee how we use data and you know AI and data science all together with our revenue products. So helping to sell advertising on some of the biggest newspapers in the world, such as uh, Wall Street Journal, Barron's, Market Watch, and other financial outlets. So it, it's a really great place to be, especially now with everything going on with the economy, elections, news, and everything's coming in through data. So really cool stuff. That's awesome. And so for me, people that work with data, I find it such an interesting topic because it's how do you get into that field and what leads you to that career path? So I'd love to just learn a little bit more about your experience and what led you down the data path. Yeah, I actually had a non-traditional entry into product and into data. I actually came in through being a reporter. So I went to undergrad for journalism and writing. And after I graduated, I was covering a technique. I was covering a mix of everything kind of going on the internet tech. So social media, Facebook, Twitter at the time, but then also advertising technology and how a lot of these web-based platforms are making money. And through there, that kind of opened up the world to me, not just as a reporter, but also as a consumer of how things like data and advertising are actually working on the internet, which I know at the time, and I probably still do, spend most of my time either on some web page or platform or something that is collecting my data. And that kind of led me into kind of take, making a career path change of understanding the products that go into that. And I've been doing that now for 10 years. Amazing. And you touched on this a little bit in your intro. So you're building out products for Dow Jones. Can you talk a little bit more about what those products look like? Who's using them? What are the, I guess, feature sets, if you will, for these things that you're building? So it's definitely a mix of both internal and external products. So internal, we will create products that help our ad sales team when it comes to booking campaigns or understanding the performance of their digital ad campaigns. But then externally, we actually create data products that can be bought and sold by the advertisers themselves. So audience targeting, contextual targeting, as well as, you know, kind of reports and insights and measurement tools that they can work with us and provide them for their advertising campaigns that are running across the Wall Street Journal and our other platforms. So it's a mix, it's a mix of both bags, but you get two different user sets and two different you know, ways of building, which is really interesting, but also can be super confusing sometimes. 
That is a great segue. I know we had talked all about building product for internal versus external. And one of the key topics that came up and that's going to be a key topic today is this idea of product advocacy and really bridging that gap between creating meaningful, impactful products while also driving innovation and business objectives and, and meeting those requirements. So can we start with explaining what exactly is product advocacy? What does it mean? So product advocacy is basically being able to defend your product decisions of the product manager, defending why the product is what it is, who it's there for, and how you are measuring success over time with a product. I think oftentimes when people are talking about product development or product development cycles, they're hyper-focused on the beginning stages and launching. And then once the product's actually out in the world, it's don't worry, it's on. But there's so much more that goes into that. And I think that's really where product advocacy shines because that's where you have to ensure that your product remains funded, remains supported, and also can grow throughout its lifetime. So that's really where product advocacy comes in is really being able to defend and understand your product. I love how you mentioned a lot of people focus on the beginning and the launch. In my experience as well, building as an HD, building products for other people. I think that focus is really much like once we launch, it's going to go viral, right? It's going to scale. It's going to be amazing. And we always ask, you know, what are you doing beyond launch? Because there's a lot of work to do, getting people on board, iterating. Yeah. And so there's always work going on and there's always understanding, okay, we launched now what? And with my team, because I have a mix of both, you know, more associate, but also junior product managers, what I always ask them is, okay, your key performance metric, your KPI is not the launch date because that's assumed. It's assumed you're going to launch this thing. But what actually is going to measure your, your performance and how is that bringing back to the business? And that goes back to the product advocacy of understanding what is it that my product is trying to solve for and how am I ensuring that it's doing that over its lifetime? And those metrics become what you share with your stakeholders, what you share with the business, what you share with finance. And some product is easier than others, especially if it's like a revenue generating product, it's going to book this amount of revenue, it's going to be bought and sold. But I think for some of the adoption centric products, that can be a little bit harder because it's like, okay, we have this whole team on this product working on it. They're in there every day. So what, right? And that's really where you need to have a strong understanding of the what of the so what, and that's how you advocate for your product long-term. Great. And so... You mentioned having KPIs beyond just the launch, right? I feel like a lot of people see the launch as the biggest milestone. So when we talk about advocating for product and talking about it in a way that's meaningful to business, what are the right questions to ask? What should we be thinking about or communicating to our stakeholders? I heard you mention a few of them, like, what are we trying to solve for? But can you dig into that a little bit more and tell me your thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. So when oftentimes with my team, just because again, we're both internal and external, We'll oftentimes have folks coming up to us with ideas or things that they want us to build or, you know, problems that they're facing. And of course, what are you really trying to solve for is always the first question I'm trying to answer. If you come to me saying that you have a client who has their own articles that they're writing about generative AI and you want to get it to people on the Wall Street Journal because they're tech leaders, cool. But why are you talking to me about it? What is it that from my team or from my product perspective that you're really looking for? And this is really the early days of the conversation and collaboration as a PM, as you're leading these conversations of understanding the crux of the problem. And once you understand what the problem is, so let's say it's, oh, we need to make sure that 
we are able to get these articles automated and shown to people in real time without the need of a person on the back end doing something, right? I'm just kind of cutting up the top of my head. Then there you go. That's your problem. We have too many people doing, you know, mundane work. You have to automate it. How do you build for that? And suddenly your problem goes to my coworker needs help to, I have to make an automated system to help this very specific advertiser. And then when you start thinking about it that way, you have things like revenue, adoption, speed, and a whole bunch of KPIs that you can measure post just, oh, we launched it. Isn't that cool? And those KPIs are what you want to share with your business partners because those KPIs can be understood long-term of, hey, we launched, it's great, but look how much revenue is being booked in. Look how many new clients we have using this. Look how fast it is. And those are the things that really only a product manager can do because engineering is going to be building it. And your job is to ensure that engineering can build it to your scope of specs that are going to hopefully fit in these metrics. And then as you know, a stakeholder, you're not going to be able to directly tell the PM, hey, I need these specific things. You're just going to tell them what's bugging you. And so, and the business is not going to really know what it needs. It's just going to be like, hey, we always want to grow. Growth is always what businesses always seem to want. So your job as a PM is to, again, be the intersection of all these folks, translate them and actually create it into a proper roadmap that can create something that can have impact. I had a really great conversation also on the podcast earlier this year. And they had mentioned that some of the best people they had worked with, whether it's on the engineering side, PM side, creative side, are the people that can ask the right questions and that can really boil down the essentials of the goals of what you're trying to build, right? It's not just about a great feature set. It's about solving something. It's about a solution to a business problem, a user problem, and providing an impactful, meaningful solution product to it. So I love how much you emphasize like the, what are you solving for? I think in product design, people can really lose sight of what they're doing. Yeah. And I think oftentimes when people think about, especially what I see with my more junior product members, is that they get so wrapped up in, am I asking the quote unquote right question? And I think it's important to separate yourself from, is this the right question? Because as a PM, you can always pivot. And that's also part of product advocacy of understanding we started here, something happens. We had to make a change because of X, Y, and Z, and now we're here and here's what to expect in the impact. And I think in the beginning conversations, oftentimes newer PMs get so almost like, like, like decision paralysis because they're so scared of like, am I asking the quote unquote right questions? Do I know what I'm doing? And a lot of PMing is just trial and error. It's understanding things as having experience, but also with that experience comes knowledge and confidence over time of, oh, we started this way. We actually learned a lot, but this isn't the way that we have to do this. We have to do something else, but I still have to manage my stakeholders and communicate this accordingly to folks who need to know this. And I think that's what comes over time with product advocacy and also just experience. That's a really great point. And I'm, one of the key things, especially that I've learned in my experience is that the best way to build a team or to build a culture for product is also to be able to embrace making mistakes. Mistakes, everyone fears them, but it's really okay as long as you have an idea or the ability to pivot quickly, like you mentioned. I mean, you learn a lot from mistakes. So I think that's a great point because sometimes you're going to mess up and as long as you can move fast, you'll still be able to recover and kind of get yourself back on track. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when it comes to the mistakes of product, and I think a lot of folks, especially early in their career, 
And I've seen this a lot with interns or folks who are fresh out of like the academic world who are so used to like the past bail system of, you know, oh, I got a C and now I can only get this much of a GPA. Like product especially does not work like that. One of the things I love about product, and it's probably why I became a product manager as a reporter, is because it's probably one of the few careers where you can absolutely eat dirt, mess up and have like a catastrophe of a launch and still gain so much from that, that you will have probably a better launch next, as opposed to some other jobs where it's like, listen, we, we, we've moved the factory, everyone's fired, you know? So that's what I've always loved about a product is that it's very similar to folks who may be into science or experimenting or creating inventions. Like it's that very similar mindset of it's a lot of trial and error at first, but then once you kind of figure out what works best for you as an individual PM, but also your team, you're just a well-oiled machine and, and you're solving a bunch of problems and it's really fun. I never really thought about it that way, but my background is in more of the traditional graphic design where things have to be pixel perfect as we will, right? You're sending things off to the printer and once it's printed, you don't really have the opportunity to update it. And so when I got into product, the biggest shift for me was understanding that it's not about pixel perfect. It's about being able to move fast and pivot and kind of react to how things are being used. And Again, being okay with making mistakes, it's not really about perfection. It's about like continuous learning and iteration. So that's enlightening for me as well. The iteration piece is so key. And this is something that I oftentimes have to instill in my more like mold PMs, which is don't worry, we can fix this. It's not a catastrophe. However, just because we can fix it doesn't mean we can just fix it in like darkness and not tell anyone. You have to communicate. You have to measure the impact. But that's also where having, like I said earlier in the conversation, these metrics and understanding of what you're solving for, because it'll be a lot easier to pivot quickly if you're seeing certain metrics just not line up. And sometimes other metrics will come from that where we thought we were measuring adoption, but then we realized that time spent was really interesting as well. And because of these changes, we're going to now measure this and the business, you know, should react accordingly. And those kind of high level conversations are what makes like a good PM to a great PM. And I think it's also the conversations that change between, and I don't know if, if you ever seen this with your other guests, but project management versus product management and project management to me is way more about like that execution phase, delivery, getting things over the finish line while product management is almost the entire life cycle and communication and stakeholder management of the entire product that, that you're overseeing. That's a really nuanced and great point. There is a very slight difference and it's, for me, I found it hard to articulate, but that's a great way of putting it. Since you've brought that up, one of the questions I had for you is, I know you work with internal and external stakeholders. So how do you communicate with and manage the expectations of different stakeholders? How everyone has different desires, needs, pain points. So I'm sure there's a lot of juggling that happens. What are your best practices? What do you do to manage all of those different personalities and expectations. I wish I could hypnotize and mind control them all into just saying yes, but that obviously is not in my skill set. But what I typically do, and this is something that works for both internal and external, is if you come up front with a clear path of delivery, understanding, and again, these metrics, I'm going to just keep hammering at home because those metrics really help people understand and where let's say get on the same playbook of what it is that we're doing together. And I think it's also important to have that open dialogue communication. I think oftentimes, especially with external stakeholders, 
it can be really challenging to find meetings, to communicate externally. I still think it's important to make that effort, whether it's through blog posts or emails or any existing means of communicating with your external stakeholders. It is so important. So that way they're aware of when things are happening. And oftentimes transparency is just key to getting people on board and trust. Because once you lose that trust, you will most likely never get it back, especially from an external stakeholder who doesn't know you from, you know, a hole in the wall. While internal stakeholders can be a little bit more forgiving and understanding because oftentimes they're either your colleagues or you're working in the same organization and you have easier access to them. However, that transparency will go even further with them because not only will they understand what they're asking of you and how it's going, but they'll also understand your team. And that also helps with the product advocacy of, his team that never worked with me before now knows how great of a communicator these people are. They know how my engineering team works. They now know people. And especially in organizations that are very remote these days, that counts for a lot just for people to know who you are, what your team does, and what your team does well. You talked a lot about trust and transparency. What do you do if things go wrong? How do you course correct? How do you bounce back from maybe, let's call it a failure, if you will. How do you bounce back from that type of experience? So when it comes to failure, I think the most important thing is, is to accept it. Oftentimes, and I've, I've seen this in my own career as well, where you'll just have a product that just needs to be sunset. It's not doing anything. It's like riddling in pain on the ground, like being like, please just put me out. And as a PM, you're like, no, I can save this. And I think it's that kind of coming to the realization that, okay, we need to pivot. And oftentimes that decision has to come down from the PM, but that isn't just the PM's decision. What I often do is when I see things going off the rails is I'll take my engineering lead, maybe a business or stakeholder liaison or lead that we have, the PM and anyone else who's probably like the core leadership of that project and say, hey, here's where we are. Here's what's not going well. And if we don't change it, here's most likely what's going to happen. And then I will always come into that conversation with a recommendation. I do not expect people on that call to be like, and be like, what do you guys think we should do? Like your job as a PM is to come with a recommendation because you have the insight, you have the measurement, you have the skills and communication to come to them and say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's my recommendation. What do we all feel about this and why? And in that conversation, listen to people. Do not have that conversation be you with like a bully stick trying to get people to say yes to your recommendation. Because while people may be like, that's a great recommendation. Thank you so much. Quick call. You may have folks being like, whoa, but did you know that X, Y, and Z is also happening? And that can help you also open up your perspective to what's going on in the situation. And I think this goes back to what I was saying about transparency and trust is by having these conversations, by talking to folks, but also bringing in your leadership, accountability, and ownership into those conversations, you are allowing people to know that, well, if I don't have an idea, the PM does, but also I'm allowed to bring in my, you know, experience and it's not all set in stone until we get off this call. And from there, then it's a matter of communication of whether it's with your, your product marketing team or your internal team, whatever it is, and letting them know, here's what happened. Here's the estimated impact. Here's what we're doing next. And once you have those three things, you communicate that to everyone, then you just build and then you're back into build mode. 
really understanding how to actually solve for whatever problem that you're trying to solve for. But like I said, it's all about communicating, getting people on the same page, but also understanding that your role as a PM is to come in there with basically 90% of the work done. And that 10% is going to get people to either challenge your assumption or agree with you and help you get things on the finish line. That's really great advice in terms of coming with 90% of the solution and allowing for the conversation and having other people provide input. That's, I think, really valuable. Uh, another thing that stuck out to me as well is the ability to listen. I feel like particularly in any organization, not just product, a lot of people are always trying to, like you said, use that bully stick and get them on board with their idea, but they're not hearing all of the other conversations and pain points that need to get considered as part of whatever that solution might be. So I think listening is a very key skill that often goes unsaid or unnoticed as much as communication. So uh, I'm glad that you've pointed that out. Yeah. And I think oftentimes it, it, that like the lack of pressure, like lack of listening is not intentional. It's oftentimes because going back to what, and I see this a lot with more, again, like the more junior PMs who are still kind of learning the ropes is you kind of come into these problems like I need consensus. I need everyone to raise their hand and say, I, you know, that's not always going to happen. It's more of a scale than a binary. You'll have some folks that are like, I'm very aligned. I'm with you. Let's go. You'll have some folks that are like, I'm more hesitant. And here's why. Or you have people like, I hate this idea because you're stupid. And I'm not giving my say. And I think oftentimes people think it's only A or B, but more people are more in the middle of like, I kind of see it, but also there's other things that I'm aware of that you may not be aware of. And by having that open dialogue and not having the bully stick approach and more talking to like, hey, here's my recommendation, you're starting everyone from the same starting line and then they can come to you and let you know what's going on. And then from there, you can get as close to, are we okay with these three next steps? They don't have to approve everything at once, but just... If I send an email with the problem impacting next steps, is everyone okay with this email? Like starting really small and then growing up from there, as opposed to using that conversation to be like, everyone needs to say yes to this grand idea I have, and no one can talk to me again for three months. That's great. And so on the same line of communication, how do you communicate the value to people who have both maybe a technical background and those without a technical background, as well as people who understand data and those who don't necessarily understand all of the things you're pulling. How do you communicate all these values to people who have just different levels of experience and understanding with both product data and technology? Yeah. So I think I had a boss who was so amazing at this. And I, I asked her, you know, how do you read people's minds? Like, it's like every time we would go into a call with her, she'll be like, this person needs to know that. That person needs to know this. And I'm like, do you, are you just like the town mayor? Like, how do you know this? And she had told me was, before she meets with folks, especially if it was in the early stage of a product or like during the builds phase, she would always remind herself or try to get insight into what do they care about the most. So if you're talking to a salesperson, they're caring about their closing numbers or caring about their clients or caring about their, you know, their team's book rates. Okay, how do you go into that conversation, understand that's where they're coming from and help them get to their goal? If you're talking to someone who is more technical, and is very understaffed because there's a resource constraint on engineers that quarter. Okay, how do you go into that conversation understanding that they're going to be understaffed, but you still need their help? How do you help them help you kind of thing? And she was so great at that. And then as I grew in my career, I always think about her in those roles and, and try to mimic that. 
of like, okay, I'm talking to the head of the product development team at Dow Jones as a whole. What do they care about the most? And once I kind of use that as a framework, one, it makes it easier for, for me to connect with this individual, especially as they get higher and higher than me. But two, it allows me to understand what they're doing and how I can help. And that has a really positive impact of you as a product leader. So that's the difference like a product manager and a product leader of being able to understand other people's pain points as well as your own and try to find common ground. And it's a good exercise in you, for lack of a better term, translating your work for different audiences. Because like, you're right, not everyone's going to be a data pro, not everyone's going to be a product pro. Some people are just, hi, I just want to sell your thing. I don't really care how it works, but like, can it be pretty? And your job as a PM is to almost code switch to all those different individuals, but still have the same core message of what your product does, why it's important, and how your team works and how your team's the best to get that done. I mean, empathy is such a big part of product design and everyone, everyone always talks about it in terms of you got to have to be empathetic to the end user and understand their goals, but you also have to think about all the different stakeholders and what they want. And you're right. You have to put yourself in their mindset in terms of like, what do you care about and how can I communicate the same information to 10 different people in 10 different ways so that you understand like the value of what we're doing here. So that's really a great point here in terms of empathy doesn't just belong with the end user, it belongs with everybody involved in the process. And also yourself as a PM, I've often found, especially with the last four years, a lot of PMs burning out very early. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they have so, there's almost like an empathy fatigue where they're giving so much for their end users and their stakeholders. And I'm like, but what are you doing to make your life easier? Are you delegating things that don't have to be your job right now? Are you working with other teams that kind of help with the things that, you know, you may not want to have, let's say, you may have a comms team that they can be working closely with to help with the loose notes. Can you be working with the tech org and figure out if they're looking to up their communication skills? Maybe they can do a code release and they can do a demo instead of you. And kind of reaching out and getting less things off the individual's plate to help them focus as well on what's the most important thing to be done. And I think that balance is like part of the growth between like associate PM, mid PM, product leader is understanding what you can do and also what you can help coach other folks to do on your team to also become product advocates. It doesn't have to just be the PM. It can be the head of engineering. It can be the intern. If you see that there are folks who have these skills or they're looking to grow these skills, use that as an opportunity to take something off your plate and also use it as a, as a learning opportunity for someone else. That's great advice. And I think it's something as you move up the ladder and you become more of a manager in your space, I think the expectation sometimes is that you have to take on more. And sure, yeah, as a manager, you do. But being part of a manager and being a good manager is understanding how to delegate some of the work, how to move resources around on your team, as well as making sure you can perform the best you can. Because if you're underperforming, your team's going to underperform. So it's really a balance between everybody involved. So that's great advice. I want to get into some just tips for beginners on how they can be digital advocates and organizations if they don't necessarily already have that culture in place, that process in place. Are there any good starting points for people who are trying to build this within their organizations that they can start implementing up front to have these conversations with the team? Yeah, I think especially if you're new, 
and you just started on a team or you're pretty junior in a team or even if you're like an intern just starting, you should talk to everyone you can and just tap into what's probably your natural human curiosity. Talk to people, ask them what's going on. And like right, right now in this moment, what is like bugging you the most? And you'll probably hear from folks like, oh my gosh, like Gmail is so slow or oh my God, this operation system, like I want to jump out a window. But then what you'll hear over time is, wait, that sounds a lot like that problem. And I think my manager who I just spoke to for the first time yesterday said something about this. Use those first like 30, 60, 90 days to talk to people and start connecting the dots. If you're in an organization for a while, but you're looking to skill up on this, use your time to get coffee once a month with someone who isn't in your team directly, but kind of floats around your team, maybe a team user, maybe it's your boss's boss, make time with people and ask them that question. What's bugging you these days? What's just like really getting on your craw? And people will gladly, especially in a work-based place, vet their problems. Obviously talk about positive things too, but from there you can kind of understand like, like where their head's at. Because what I've learned is that when you're first starting out, understanding where people's pain points are will be a really great way for you to understand how does my product fit in to solving these problems. Because they're just going to tell you the problems. They're not going to tell you the solutions. And don't try to solution in that moment. Use it as a good opportunity to also just practice your listening. You are almost like their therapist. You're there. You are a wall. You're a sponge. You are like collecting the information. You do not have to fix it right then. You're just collecting that information. And when you go back to your team or your manager, you can start these conversations like, hey, I talked to Henry in finance and apparently they do these crazy print revenue reports by hand every day with like a stone chisel. We need to help him. <laughs> and you may learn stuff from that. That's great. And I, I love that you say you don't have to solution in that moment. I feel, at least for myself, sometimes I feel that pressure of I hear a problem and I have to immediately respond with, well, here's how we're going to fix that. And sometimes it's not about fixing it in that moment. It's about getting all the information that I can and letting it sit and then figuring out a solution later once I've had a better chance to take everything into account. So I think it's good. You're telling people to slow down. That is great advice for everybody. Funny enough, I actually learned that from my husband. I didn't learn that from work. It's like my husband and I are just two very different people. Like he's very type B, I'm very type A. And when we first moved in together, I think I was getting all like upset about like something really trivial, like dishes in the sink or something just very domestic. And I was like, gosh, there's so many dishes in the sink and blah, 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 blah. And my husband turned to me, he goes, is this a 10.30 p.m. conversation? Or is this like a 9.45 a.m. tomorrow conversation? And just the way that he phrased that just made me stop in my tracks. I'm like, well, I guess they don't have to be cleaned right now. We can talk about this tomorrow. And he's like, exactly. So let's just, what 10.30 p.m. should be is brush your teeth, go to bed. And then tomorrow we will accomplish the dishes. And of course we did the next day. And oftentimes I'll think to myself in any conversation, is this a 10.30 p.m. conversation or is this a later down the line conversation? And so, yeah, that's always kind of been something I thought about since of like, that urge that I think a lot of folks have, especially in the workplace, to like deliver and go. Because as you said earlier, launching is such a big milestone for PMs. But sometimes the biggest accomplishment is just understanding what's going on and understanding your universe and then being able to go for it. And not everything is as time sensitive as it may feel like in that moment because someone's talking to you with so much passion about how much they hate a certain part of their process. 
I feel like that's really relatable because I've definitely had that conversation of in my personal life of, is this something that we need to do right now? Or can we have this conversation in the morning when we've kind of cooled off or had some time to let it sit? So I love that. I might use that now at work as well. Of Is this like a 6 p.m. conversation or can we talk about this in the morning? So that's great. Thank you for that one. And I think you gave tips on how people getting into digital advocacy or new PMs can start integrating this into their workflow. My next question was actually going to be for those just planning ahead in general, what tips might they have? What things might they need to keep in mind for the future? I feel like the things you've already mentioned are really applicable, but is there anything else you might add to that in terms of just planning for the future of product or whatever you might be doing? Yes. I think you're always planning. Unfortunately, I oftentimes joke. I'm like, I have a joke with my team, like, for the first six months, my budget season's over for this year. And suddenly it's like October. My budget season is now over for this year. On to the next year. And it's just like, you're never done planning. What I will say, though, is what I've actually learned recently is when you are planning, whether it's your portfolio or your roadmap or even like your Jira tickets, understand if you have like a one place where it's a giant Google Doc where you and your PMs are working together to organize your thoughts or like a Google sheet where you have all your items in your portfolio, all the resources, if there's any revenue being generated, and also the KPIs that I mentioned before, how have you been doing quarter over quarter, month over month with those metrics? Just a place where that all lives. It doesn't have to be beautiful. You can beautify that down the road. But just having that on paper, I found, is a really good way to kind of keep like an ever-living document that also doesn't have to be perfect. Like you could have the floppy comic sans and just like keep it low stakes. But as long as it's there and you can work with your team to figure out that everything's accurate over time, you'll start seeing trends of like, wait a minute, we thought that adoption was low because of the time of year we launched. Actually, it's because these features also launched and that may have a, a latency problem. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can see once it's all in one place. And I've actually found that to be really helpful for things like budgeting, where you see all your products in one place and how they've been performing. And when you're figuring out budgeting and resourcing, you can kind of just refer to that Comic Sans doc and kind of get a very quick understanding of what's going on in the universe. And that's really good for more higher level PMs, because as you grow as a PM and get more into management versus like day to day, you're not going to be as close to the building stuff as your associate and general PMs are. But having just a place that you can go and quickly see what's going on will really help you kind of fill in some blanks and know what questions to ask when you meet with those folks. I think the creatives listening in might revolt at hearing a Comic Sans doc, but the idea is very great. I mean, I think having something in one place is essential. I also sometimes have things all over the place and consolidating is just huge just to get a large picture of what's going on. So that's great advice. But speaking of future, what is the impact of emerging technologies on the work that you do? Is that something that you're seeing that you have to work into your process and flow? We've got so many things come in. Of course, the AIs, all of that stuff. Is that impacting the work that you're doing? Yes, absolutely. So generative AI and, and data collection, as well as data privacy. I think data privacy for folks who have data products, I mean, Anyone who isn't talking to their lawyers at least like five times a day probably hasn't been talking to their lawyers nearly enough as we're dealing with also like user advocacy when it comes to our users understanding how their big data is being used. And I know as a PM, I'm constantly towing this line between, okay, yes, legally we have to do this. And, you know, for our users, we want to do that. But also as a product, we need this as well. And I think that kind of goes back to that advocacy 
and having that muscle trained for these kind of conversations. But I would say policy, process, people is a big part of the, the data world right now, as well as, of course, generative AI and how that's all coming in. And I'm always been a huge advocate for what can we do more effectively versus, hey, can we just have a computer do it for us? Because I think a lot of folks, especially PMs who work with data scientists or have AI-driven products have their investors, business stakeholders being like, can we do this with two people now because we have AI? And like having to be like, no, actually, someone needs to write the code. (laughs) Someone needs to train the robot as well. But I think those emerging technologies, regardless of, of, of what they are, the core principles of being a product manager apply in those places. It's just what you're applying them to. Yeah, and I think we've come full circle here when you talk about AI and implementing some of these really cool technical things into your workflow. It is really about asking the right questions, like how can this actually help the process versus hinder? I think everyone thinks AI is this magical thing that can just do everything. And sure, it can probably automate a lot of the process, a lot of the more redundant things, but you still need to figure out where it's useful, where it actually makes sense and then where the human comes in and they have to take over. So that is a great point. And thinking about the why and how to actually use it effectively. Exactly. All right. I know we're coming to an end here and we've talked about a lot of things on today's conversation. We like to wrap things up with what we call a majestic bite. So a key takeaway that our audience can get from this conversation. What would your majestic bite be for this convo? So my majestic bite would be, and I don't know how many people are actually aware of this, but when I first started as, when I went from a general PM to a senior PM, I did not realize how much of a jump that was going to be. I'm like, oh, it's just senior in a title. I already know what to do. And I was totally fish out of water, like drowning in work. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not ready for this. And my manager at the time, he gave me a really simple, but very beautiful chart that I had, I still have on my desk to this day which is called the stages of learning. And there's four stages of learning. It's like a famous, you know, graph. But basically, whenever you start something new, whether it's a new job, new project, new anything, you don't know what you don't know. You are going in completely blind. Then the next stage is you know what you don't know and you know that you don't know it. So you're starting to understand like, okay, I know there is this stuff going on. I don't know how to fix it. And that's where like the curiosity and talking to people comes in. And then it's, okay, I know I don't know. I can get through it. It's kind of hard. I'm thinking about it, but it's moving and grooving. And that's when you're usually like probably six months, maybe a year into a job where you're deeper into the build process of a product and you're understanding it. And then of course, the last bit is it's almost like automatic in your head. You know what you don't know, you know who to go to and all that stuff. And those four stages of learning you restart that every time you start a new job, a new process, a new relationship, a new dog, like everything you've ever started that's new, those stages of learning are universal. So oftentimes what I'll have is when I'll have interns who feel like they just don't know where they are, or I'll have a mid to early PM who's just like hit a snag, I will review that stages of learning doc with them and be like, where do you think you are? okay, so you're expecting yourself to know everything, even though you've been on this project for two weeks and you're actually in stage one. And that kind of processing of kind of questioning your own, like, oh, that's right, I'm not supposed to know everything yet. I'm only here. Can really help put a lot of that pressure off of internally flow PMs and help raise their empathy. So stages of learning chart, have one on your desk, look it up, 
it is a good way to get out of your own head and kind of question your own like assumptions of yourself and where you are and also help you review and be like, wow, I started not knowing anything and now I'm like an expert and can really help you over time really appreciate how far you've grown as a PM in your career. I know the chart that you're talking about and you're right. It does apply continuously over the lifetime of your career. I feel like when I've seen it, most people apply it to like milestones or very specific points in careers or the year, but it is true. Every time you start a new project, you have to learn. You don't know everything yet, but I love the idea of putting it against your career as well, just to put things in perspective. And maybe you feel this way. I think sometimes managers and product can have a bit of imposter syndrome because things change so fast and you have to continuously learn and get up to speed. So sometimes it's just hard to keep up with everything and you feel like, oh my God, I don't know this new tech. I don't have time to learn it. I'm terrible, but you're not. So that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Caroline, where can people go to find out more about you, your company? Do you want to direct people to anywhere specific? So you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter. Everything's usually under Caroline Albanese or C. Albanese. You can kind of find me there. And you see I'm talking about product, talking about making products better for people and making people better for products because we are also important as well. Awesome. We'll share those links with the episode. Caroline, thank you so much for your time today. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much as well. This is great. Thank you for listening. And we hope you found this episode insightful. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review. You can find more information and links to all the resources mentioned in today's episode at productbuilderspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you by Majestic Apps. We imagine, design, and build digital products. With clients like Chevrolet, AudioMac, IBM, Barefoot, and more, you can be sure you're in good hands. Reach out to us at MajesticApps.com.